gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, gosh, I feel effulgent and ebullient this morning. Um, I know I'm all usually talking about how I'm uh, cranky and tired and all that. And while I will always be cranky and tired in my heart, um, I actually don't feel all that cranky and tired in normal ways. Anyway, where to begin? Let's start with, let's start where we picked up last week. So um, I got a lot of negative feedback from listeners about how I care too much about Twitter spats and all that kind of thing. And I thought, I think in general, you're right, or you have a point. But I thought in this case, talking about how my thing about small donors was a legitimate thing for me to do, even though it was sparked by a um, algae plume of asininity on Twitter. You know, when a U.S. senator comes snarking at me, I think that alone, you know, even though it's on, you know, a platform that we're not supposed to talk too much about around here, I think that alone sort of gives me an out. Moreover, the fact that it kind of blew up into a whole thing, um, lots of lots of really nasty uh, asinine places, and I'm not going to give them the credit of, I, mean, I haven't read all of it. I just, you know, the problem with the way Twitter works now it's almost impossible for me to have to look at replies that aren't full of nasty quotes from dumbasses, alt writers, uh, very online national conservatives, and all these kinds of people. And so I could tell that it, it went super viral in all of those sorts of fever swamp um, corners. And it also forced me to, um, you know, write a piece about it. And I thought my LA Times column about it was pretty good. I thought uh, Nick Katojo's piece coming to my defense was great. Um, I know Kevin wrote a piece about this. Um, I just don't know if we've put it up yet. He sent me a draft of it. And this is just one of these things where, you know, it's so central to sort of my diagnosis, my theory of the case about why um, our politics are so stupid right now that I thought it was worth, it was a good hook to keep talking about it. But I will, in the future, try to find fewer hooks that are based upon me being pissed off at people on Twitter so long as they're not entirely pretextual. Uh, that said, let's just, let's talk about that a little bit further for a second. As a bunch of people, um, uh, including friends of mine, you know, when they were not publicly, <laughs> but privately coming to my defense and sending me notes or texts or whatever, uh, this is not really a huge complaint. I've, I've long since, I can't, I can't come to the defense of, of every friend who gets attacked by jackasses on Twitter um, so I don't expect everyone to do the same with, for me, you know, one friend of mine who used to work at the Heritage Foundation said, you know, it's not just small donors with candidates, it's small donors with, you know, think tanks. And I, and he's entirely right. Um, um, listeners probably know who this would recognize, would certainly recognize the name of this person, but I'm not going to out them. And that's a point I've actually been making on here and elsewhere for a very, very long time is that basically, I mean, I don't know how many times I've talked about it on, on here, the institutions that first decisively broke towards Trump and before that towards the Tea Parties and, you know, but just in general, the first institutions that get caught up in populist waves are institutions that as a business model depend on lots of small donors or a donor base a national donor base that is uh, really turned on to the controversies of the day as played out on talk radio and Fox. That's just a fact. You know, Heritage depends on hundreds of thousands of small donors and, and recurring small donors. And when I say small donors, I don't necessarily mean it's a small amount of money um, in the eyes of everybody. It could be $1,000 a month for all I know. But for a lot of them, it's $100 a month or $10 a month or $12 or $5 or whatever. But it's a huge number of people. And these people are are very turned on to, you know, the controversies of the day. Um, a lot of them are sort of older, angrier, man yells at clouds kind of types. And Heritage has always been super responsive to, not always, they're just changed a lot over the last 10 years and really a lot over the last two or three. But uh, Heritage has always been really responsive to sort of where 
the beating heart of of small donors are of you know where when I say small donors, I also just mean where the sort of uh, what the whatever the popular thing that's 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 uh, stirring up the blood of the right of the of the base of the Republican Party. That's usually where you'll see sort of places like Heritage and not just Heritage running. And the same principle applies to basically any business, um, even nonprofit businesses that are, you know, dependent on a mass audience, right? And so in the early days of Trump, you know, it was funny how Trump would criticize, I mean, uh, uh, Rush Limbaugh would criticize Trump a little bit. And then he would get blowback from his listeners and he incorporated that, internalized that and changed his tune. And I think that basically is what happened to all of the talk radio guys, including ones who tried to stay, you know, more intellectually honest. But, you know, Hugh Hewitt basically went with where the audience went. Um, and he just said words to that effect. Mike Gallagher, basically, I keep I've mentioned this a million times about his weird debate with with Guy Benson years ago where. He, uh, Mike Gallagher was reading Benson the Riot Act for um, criticizing Trump, and Benson said, "Well, that's my job is to sort of tell what I, you know, offer my analysis and my honest opinion." And Gallagher said, to his credit, I think honestly, uh, "No, your job is to articulate and advocate for the views of your audience." And these are just two different conceptions, and I think listeners at this point know where I come down on this. I talked about this for a while with. Uh, Daniel Hanan the other day, uh, which I thought was a great conversation, even though I was sort of out of it. Um, and if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend it, in part just because of his fancy, euphonious British accent. You know, and that's one of the things, you know, so like this is, it's all part and parcel of my general critique of populism is that I think institutions, responsible institutions, for the most part, are supposed to be circuit breakers against populism, against the passion of the moment. They are not supposed to be fomenters of populism, fomenters of passion. They shouldn't be in the business of legitimizing and intensifying anger, outrage, and fear. And that's what a lot of institutions on the right do these days because it's part of the business model. It's also the business model of social media. It's part of the business model of cable news generally. It's the business model of vast swaths of the American left. You know, activists got to keep people scared and angry all the time. And people think this makes me an elitist, which I'm fine with that charge, right? People seem to think that being called an elitist in and of itself is this incredible insult. And I get it. You know, people think it means snobbish. And I don't think I'm a snob. I don't think I'm devoid of some snobbish aspects. I would, I would put it more on the side of discernment, good manners, and good taste than actual snobbery. But whatever, you know, but at the same time, I do think that people with in positions of influence and responsibility um, should have some fiduciary, feel some fiduciary obligation to be responsible. And that's what elites in a healthy society do. That's what Republicanism is largely about. And this idea that, and that's certainly what, you know, this is certainly at the heart of conservatism for a gazillion years. It, I think it's such a tell, the people who immediately think, first of all, that I've changed my position on anything or that my position against small donors or direct democracy or transparency or populism or any of these things is a result of Trump. No, I, the way I feel about it is that Trump has, A, vindicated my position, which I used to, you know, which people could have plausibly said, oh, you're just saying those things because the left likes populism, because the left, you know, wants more democracy, because if everybody voted, it'd be good for Democrats, which is in fact not true. Uh, people could say, you know, could plausibly argue, because it turns out lots of conservative pundits basically argue positions based upon uh, partisan advantage rather than actual conviction or principle about the issue at hand. But it turns out, no, like when all of these issues started to work in the Republican Party's favor, or at least when the Republican Party and all the people who run the Republican Party and the conservative movement, or at least the populist parts of the conservative movement, started saying, no, 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 populism is good. You know, small donors are good. Passion in politics is good. Expediency, taking the shortest, you know, politics as the crow flies is good. Rudeness is its is 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 its is self-justifying because you can't, you know, you have to fight no matter what. It turns out that 
I didn't change my position on any of this kind of stuff. And if I sound defensive about it, it's because I am. I mean, I, I truly, you know, I, I kind of value my integrity. If I, if I can't sort of take the position in defending myself against the unbelievable garbage that gets thrown at me, that actually I'm not the one who changed, who will, right? I mean, it's, I'm, it's really bad paraphrasing from the Talmud, but you get the point. I don't want to dwell on this part of it, but like there was this, this, this piece about the DeSantis campaign in the New Yorker that I mentioned on the Dispatch pod yesterday um, where they would do these focus groups and the moderator would ask if the, audit, if the group agreed with the statement, you know, that the 2020 COVID lockdowns were bad. 70% of Republican voters, primary voters, whatever, agreed with the statement. And then the moderator would say, but if the moderator said Trump's COVID lockdowns were bad, 70% of the focus groups would disagree. So I want to bring that up here is that in a climate like that, where you change your actual position on a specific public policy thing that made you mad, just because, just if it be, if it becomes inconvenient for Donald Trump, you can't really say that I'm the one, you know that people like me and my colleagues at the Dispatch and you know and and and, and at National Review and elsewhere, who are still for the things we were for five years ago, are the ones who changed. What really changed for a lot of people was this expectation. What the 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 the, the key insight here is that people wanted Republican intellectuals, journalists, writers, pundits, whatever, to just simply defend the Republican position no matter what, rather than the actual positions that they held. And so when the Republican Party under Trump changed its positions, or when uh, the, you know, the, 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 the tastemakers um, in Fox primetime started picking up populist nationalist nonsense, the expectation was, was that everybody you know, in my line of work would go with them. And we didn't. And as a result, people say you changed when, in fact, we didn't. You did. I want to get to some Hunter Biden stuff. But first, uh, you know, uh, the, this just reminds me, you know, one of the charges that you get a lot is that conservatism never conserved anything. I'm sure you've heard this a million times. Um, I see it all the time. Um, it is now, it's not even debated. It's just asserted. You know, the discussion has moved on to asking questions of why conservatism hasn't conserved anything. And first of all, I think that's garbage. I don't think it's true. I think it's ahistorical um, nonsense. It's a very useful framing for people who want to overthrow, you know, or who overthrew the old establishment. And so I get it as a political, uh, a political sort of talking point and weapon. But it occurred to me that, you know, part of the problem with it is, I mean, I, and again, I don't want to rehash the successes of the conservative legal movement, you know, about all the things that we got from deregulation and yada, 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 free markets, all that. I've talked about that plenty of times. I just sort of philosophically want to have a bone to pick with it. It occurred to me that the other day that, that the problem with the phrase conservatism hasn't conserved anything is a misunderstanding of what conservatism is and does. Look, I'm, I'm the first to concede I don't like all of the changes in the last 50 years. Um, there are plenty of things in the culture that I think, I think have been un, have been unhealthy changes in the culture, and you can and there are perfectly serviceable and defensible arguments about changes in the economy that haven't been all to the good. It's all fine. Debates for another day, but as a sort of a metaphysical or epistemological philosophical approach, my problem with the fra the formulation is it sort of assumes that the job of conservatism is actually stasis, right? That it's supposed to prevent anything from changing. That's never really been part of conservatism rightly understood or conservatism in the sort of Anglo-American tradition. It's not even really part of the word conserve. I mean, think about other contexts where you conserve things. You know, conserve your energy. This doesn't mean don't expend any energy, because if you don't spend any energy, you're what doctors call dead. Conserve your gas. Doesn't mean don't burn any gas. It just means conserve your gas. Don't be profligate. Conserve your money. Doesn't mean don't spend any money. You know, if your plane goes down in the Andes and you have to make your food last, you say conserve your food. You don't say don't eat your food, right? So implicit in 
conservatism and conservation is this recognition that life moves on, that thing, that things change, that the only thing that stays the same is the fact that things change. The, the conservatism, the conserving and conservatism is about rate of change, about what should change and how fast, what shouldn't change at all, um, and occasionally even what things should be restored. And there are prudential arguments and practical ar and, and philosophical arguments and ideological arguments all over the map on, on those sorts of questions. But I think the way to think about it in a certain way is it's sort of like saying, let's just say for the sake of argument that progressives are utopians, okay? Not all progressives are utopians, and, uh, but a lot are, right? And uh, anyway, I'm just saying this to sort of illustrate the point saying why have why didn't conservatives conserve anything is sort of like why haven't utopians made anything perfect yet and the point being is that you can't make anything perfect i mean puppies yeah but even you know even puppies poop on the carpet right i mean there are downsides to everything perfection is not for this world you know we are not going to immunitize the eschaton the the smart utopian smart progressive answer to that kind of criticism would be, well, yeah, no, we haven't made anything perfect, but we've made progress, you know, and depending on the kind of progressive you are, you might point to gay rights or, you know, women's rights or, um, you know, the great society, whatever. I mean, I mean, we have whatever arguments you want to have with all that, that's fine. That's not what I'm interested in. But as a philosophical matter, the sort of stolen base presumes that, you know, conservatism was supposed to keep X, Y, and Z from ever changing at all. And that wasn't ever going to be possible. Edmund Burke believed in change and progress. You know, even Russell Kirk believed in change and progress. So it's just, what, who's the guy? Um, it's not Rothschild. It's, he's got one of those fancy, crazy names, Baron, blah, 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 whose famous line was, when change is unnecessary, it is necessary not to change. And I've quoted that a gazillion times, even though I can't remember the name of the dude who said it. And please don't send me an email about it because five minutes after I get off of this, I'm going to look it up. So thank you, but I just, I'm just forgetting right now. I've quoted that a million times. I generally agree with its logic, both in, you know, there's a lot of philosophical conservatism that I don't think necessarily has to apply to your personal life or how you live your life. And there's a lot that is, but I, you know, uh, that's one that I think applies in all sorts of realms of life, not just in sort of politics. Um, and remember, as, as Michael Oakshot argued, you can be a radical in every other part of your life and still be a political conservative. And I would argue that people who are radicals in many parts of their lives should be politically conservative, at least small c conservative, about some fundamental things, right? Like preserving the Bill of Rights, um, preserving uh, the extended order of liberty is something that we should, you know, conserve um, and preserve. Um, shouldn't have to depend on what party you belong to, right? That's one of these things that should be um, settled dogma. Um, oh, that reminds me. I got I got I got into an email back and forth with a listener who generally agrees with me about the dogma stuff, but he had a, he asked a good question about what's the limiting principle about what things should be sort of settled issues. And if, if you recall, I, I think I talked about it here two weeks ago. I can't, I can't remember um, about how, you know, I want some questions and I, I certainly wrote about it recently because I've written about it so many freaking times. Um, I want certain issues to be sort of settled. Just we're done. We're not going to debate this anymore. Uh, you know, slavery is one fought a war over it, killed hundreds of thousands of our fellow citizens over it, amended the Constitution a few times, followed up with a struggle that lasted almost a century until leading up to the Civil Rights Acts. It seems to be sort of a settled issue, right? This is not one we need to revisit. We don't need to revisit uh, ritual human sacrifice. Don't need to revisit the question of whether or not murder is bad. You can debate what constitutes murder, right? You can, saw, you can draw lines between negligent homicide and first-degree murder. Law does that all the time. But I don't think we need a debate in this society about whether or not society is going to 
punish or, or try to deter murder, right? It's a dogmatic thing, predates the Enlightenment, predates modernity. You know, the definition of what counts as murder has changed a lot over time because you were allowed to do all sorts of evil, terrible things to people outside of your tribe. Um, and it wasn't considered bad at all. But if you did it to somebody inside your tribe, it was murder or rape or whatever. And that coalition instinct thing is weird. And one of the signs of human progress is the, the ever-expanding definition of who's inside our coalition. This is one of the reasons why, you know, Ronald Reagan loved that, you know, he used to love to talk about how if we were ever invaded by aliens, humans would rally together overlooking all their national, ethnic, and religious differences and form one giant pro-human coalition. He got made fun of a lot of it for, a lot for it, but I think he was entirely right. And I think it's, you know, a good point, but like, the, one of the reasons why the nation state has endured for so long is because there's something about the nation state that has stability for the coalition instinct to operate at scale, except for some human rights types. And I'm not trying to denigrate them. I think what they're doing is generally noble and right. Um, but we do not have an attitude that if somebody outside of our country kills somebody outside of our country, it's really any of our business unless it reaches the proportion of like genocide, you know, or something along those lines. Anyway, so yes, this, this, this listener asked me, you know, what's my limiting principle? It's a good question. And it's a question I ask people all the time about their commitments. I think the answer is I don't have one, or at least I have not, I've been thinking about it for a few days. We emailed back and forth a little bit. I've been thinking about it for a few days. I have yet to find one I can articulate as a sort of aphorism or maxim or formula of some kind. I, I think it's more like, this is a question more like statesmanship, right? I mean, what is statesmanship? Well, it's, 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 it's fidelity to the law and to the national interest, but it's also knowing where to bend and, you know, where to compromise and keeping your eye on the long-term good, even if that means in the short term you have to do bad things or regrettable things. It's one of these, unfortunately, one of these know-it-when-you-see-it kind of things. And that's a real problem for me in this position because if I'm talking about how I want some questions to be settled um, and not constantly re-debated as if it's fine to just ask questions... I should have some principle that draws a line about the things that should be settled dogma and, and things that shouldn't be. I don't have one. All I can do is a sort of, I think it's sort of, partly it's the sort of, you know, the obscenity test that you know it when you see it. Like, it's pretty obvious that we shouldn't be debating whether or not we should reinstate slavery, right? It's pretty obvious to me that we shouldn't be debating whether the Holocaust was good or bad. Although there are plenty of people who want to keep that a live debate issue. I think the only, the search for an easy limiting principle is just is going to not get you there. It's got to be some mixture of argument, of reason, of appeal to history and conscience. And also, you know, a healthy dose of sort of the Chesterton's fence thing where you guys should know Chesterton's fence by now. Chesterton talks about how the, the zealous reformer finds a fence in the woods and wants to tear it down. Well, and the, the overzealous reformer says, we should tear down this fence. There's no obvious reason for it. And the Chestertonian response is, well, somebody built it. Don't, maybe don't tear it down until you first understand why someone put it up. And that's my attitude towards most traditions. It's my attitude towards most moral propositions. If they've survived and matured at, for this long and come this far, then I give them a presumption of respect and utility. But sometimes bad dogmas survive for a really long time and they need to be overturned. I just think that it should be rare, but when it does happen, it should be, it should happen because it is morally obvious. And the analogy I would use is sort of like amending the constitution. It's supposed to be hard to amend the constitution for the simple reason that you want everybody in society, you know, as much as reasonably possible to have buy-in, to debate it, to think about it. You want all these different state legislatures and, and, and politicians and communities to weigh the pros and cons of an amendment. And then you want more than just a majority of 50 plus one to agree to it because once it's in the Constitution, it's probably not going to leave. You know, it's pretty rare we repeal 
constitutional amendments. And I think that's sort of my attitude towards the dogma stuff. Anyway, I didn't plan on, I didn't plan on talking about any of this, but uh, I probably shouldn't have spent so much time on a one listener email exchange. All right, so let's talk about the Hunter Biden stuff. I mean, you guys know my position about Hunter Biden. He's obviously corrupt. And when I say corrupt, I don't necessarily mean criminal, but I, it seems obvious to me that there's ample criminality in there too. I mean, the fact that he was willing and eager to take a plea deal where he confessed to some criminality, I think at least makes it defensible to talk about his criminality. And the full scope of his corruption is still not completely known. I still haven't seen anything that lays down the last mile of track that connects Hunter explicitly to his dad. But I also, from everything I've seen, it is pretty obvious that his dad has a blind spot or knows the full scope of what's going on with his kid and is covering for him or covering for himself. But he clearly lied in the past about having no, uh, no knowledge of what Hunter was up to. He, had, he clearly lied in the past when he said, you know, his kid did nothing wrong and sent in debates that his kid didn't make any money from China or Ukraine or any of that kind of stuff. Those are just lies. How many, how many of them were sort of like venal versus whatever the other one is uh, kind of lies people can debate, but he clearly lied. The White House is clearly covered for Hunter. And that said, I think that the thing that I find more and more troublesome and worrisome is the DOJ stuff. I have very conflicting views on this and generally unpopular in all corners. I think it is probably outrageous. Like, it really bothers me, all the people saying Republican, the Republican Party, particularly ones who are all in on the Hunter Biden stuff, there's plenty of hypocrisy and bad acts by then. Plenty, right? One of the things I always listen for is how Comer or some of these other guys will fog up the distinction between stuff Biden did when he was vice president and when he left and after he left office. And they want to keep it ambiguous because they want to make it sound like he was taking money from these places when he was vice president. And if you actually look closely, that's not really there. At the same time, there are aspects of things that he did, probably because, you know, he was leaving office. It, he wasn't running again. No one thought he was going to be president again. And he was trying to set himself up for basically a cushy retirement. And so I think he did some shady, gray, questionable things, setting up, you know, the Biden Center and all these other things on his way out the door. But that's not really proof of, of influence peddling, never mind bribery or anything like that. So, look, I, I think the Republicans get way out over their skis on a lot of these things, which I think is a huge mistake, particularly if you actually believe that Biden did impeachable things. You should have some patience and do your homework and do your due diligence and get that part of it nailed. Because the dumbest thing, which I think still might happen, Republicans could do is do an impeachment without the goods, which I think is, I think there's a very high probability there's an impeachment either way. If they actually had proof of some of the stuff that people think Biden did, I'd be in favor of the impeachment, you know, but you're just not there yet. At the same time, the, the appointment of this Weiss guy as the special prosecutor, it kind of stinks. And, um, and I don't blame Republican. Oh, that's how I, got, how I got on this, right? So yes, I've stipulated Republicans are doing a lot of shady hypocritical stuff, but I really can't stand all of the liberal commentators who are just dunking on Republicans for being hypocrites for having a problem with Weiss being appointed special prosecutor when they asked for Weiss to be appointed special prosecutor like eight months ago or 10 months ago. And I get it as a superficial talking point. It sounds like a really good gotcha, but it misses some really important context, which is that Weiss had essentially agreed to this bonkers plea deal with Hunter. And now it turns out as of like, was it this week or late last week? That according to Biden, Hunter Biden's lawyers, which was in a official pleading to the court, so I, I don't think they think they're committing perjury or making stuff up. The plea deal was largely dictated by the Justice Department. And the plea deal was, now look, this is one of these areas where I disagree with a lot of people. It is not obvious to me that it was a cushy plea deal for the crimes that we actually know Hunter did. Most people who are late paying their taxes don't get criminally prosecuted at all. So you, there are arguments going the other way on that. But the plea deal was weird because of this diversionary thing that 
was supposed to be supervised by the judge and not by the Justice Department. It gets really complicated. But there there are aspects to some of this stuff that I think are really sketchy. And one of them was Weiss apparently like played, didn't try to what they call toll the statute of limitations for one or more of these charges, which is basically like when you're prosecuting somebody and it's coming up on the deadline of the statute of limitations, what you usually do is you call the defense attorney and say, hey, look, let's toll, which means basically stop the clock for a little while. Let's, let's, let's stop the clock on the statute of limitations because if we don't, I can definitely indict him right now, but you would rather I keep doing my homework because maybe I won't indict him at all so long as I don't have to get this done, so long as I don't have to be rushed before the um, expiration of the statute of limitations. Weiss didn't do that. That's at least my understanding. I am way out of my lane here. Um, but I've talked to a few lawyers about this stuff, and that's the gist of it. And so anyway, whether or not Weiss did anything wrong, I think that the, you know, the statute for the special counsel, special prosecutor, says you're supposed to go outside of the DOJ precisely so that you find someone who is not compromised by internal political considerations. And, and so Republicans, I think, have a perfectly defensible argument to say, we don't like how he has conducted this investigation so far, so it really doesn't do anything for us to make him a special prosecutor. On the flip side, I think one of the things, and, and again, I, I'm getting this mostly from a couple of uh, very experienced conservative lawyer friends that I've been talking to, I think one of the things that both the right and the left, but it's the right's turn, get confused about a lot is the difference between careerism and conspiracies when it comes to the operations of the DOJ or the government in general. You know, and so as, as one friend of mine put it, you know, look, you don't have to have some great theories of the deep state, you know, Lisa Monaco, who's the deputy AG and very political um, or Merrick Garland being, you know, corrupt and partisan or Biden yelling at everybody, save my son. You don't have to have any of those theories to understand why it's not really in the interest of Delaware U.S. district attorneys and Delaware judges to go hard at the son of the president of the United States. You know, there are no Republicans, to, you know, there are no elected Republicans in Delaware. If you want to be a judge one day in Delaware, two Democratic senators aren't going to give you the nod if you screwed with the Biden family. And um, I'm not defending this. I'm just saying it doesn't have to be sinister. It's just, it can be just a headwind. You know, you're making judgment calls about reading evidence one way or another way or uh, devoting resources to one thing over another thing, the, the career, long-term career considerations and, and also the pushback you'll get in real time from trying to pursue something, it's just a real fact of life. And it doesn't mean anybody is like taking orders from above or getting messages through their fillings or anything like that. And so when Weiss was talking about how, or when Republicans said that, you know, Merrick Garland lied because Weiss wanted to have, he said Weiss had all the authority he needed to prosecute anything he wanted, but he didn't get cooperation from, uh, was it D.C. and California uh, U.S. attorneys. I think that's bad. It's something to cl complain about. I don't think Garland lied. I think a more plausible Occam's razor explanation is that those officials in, in California and D.C., they said no. And Weiss had the authority to go over their heads and say, Garland, hey, we got to make these prosecutions. And he didn't do it. And he didn't do it for a bunch of reasons. You know, it, it because maybe someone sat him down and said, you know, do you really want to, like, put the attorney general in this terrible position of ordering these guys to do this thing? You know, wh where do you think that's going to go? Not necessarily a conspiracy, not necessarily some master plan, but certainly some, you know, sort of institutional resistance that Weiss wasn't necessarily willing to overpower. Maybe he now is. Maybe that's why he wanted to be special counsel. I suspect, again, I don't know. This is just my tea leaf reading. I suspect that this has more to do with the fact that 
if you make Weiss a special counsel, it makes it easier for various witnesses inside and outside of the government to say they won't testify before Congress. And it's a way to slow down congressional investigations. Anyway, I don't know. I could be wrong, but uh, I think there's a lot. It's not just smoke. There are, there are shiny bits of embers of fire in this thing. And I get all the reasons why people don't want it to be a thing. Because first of all, it's exhausting. Second of all, it involves a drug addict kid and an old man who's kind of out of it. It also creates what they think, I don't necessarily agree, but um, a path in which it becomes easier for Donald Trump to become president of the United States. I get the resistance and all that, but I think it's bad analysis and it's a bad double standard. And I am not saying what, even if everything that can be plausibly thrown at Biden in terms of his conduct, I don't think it comes within a fraction of the things that Donald Trump has done, but that's not the standard, right? I mean, again, this is the reverse of, you know, the thing I've been saying for seven years now is that you don't judge the conduct of presidents or politicians um, based upon what their opponents do. You base it upon an external standard of right conduct. And if, in fact, Joe Biden essentially took bribes or sold influence, we should know that. That is a perfectly legitimate thing for the press to investigate and for Congress to investigate. And I don't think there is no there there. Having LLCs for your granddaughter um, and having these major cash transfers to various members of your family and, and at least these allegations that basically Biden family money was fungible. So a payment to Hunter was also a payment to Joe. I'm not saying that stuff is true, but like Lord knows if if Biden were a Republican president, people would say, you know, the the there'd be a lot less sort of smirking and poo-pooing from, you know, the MSNBC crowd um, about this stuff. And so anyway, that's where I come down. But let's talk about it for a second this this broader idea that the DOJ is corrupt. I just laid out in microcosm the first point, which is that like you're never gonna get politics completely out of the Department of Justice or any government institution, including the army, right? That's in part because there are re legitimate roles for politics in these institutions, right? I mean, like you elect a president or a party, you know, whether it's Congress or the White House, whatever, but you, you elect Democrats to prioritize certain things and you elect Republicans to prioritize certain things. It doesn't mean that Republicans won't do stuff they're obliged to do at the Department of Justice, but they may not make it a priority, right? I mean, so like whether if, I think Sarah's used this example before, it's like, you know, Democrats care more about reducing incarceration and Republicans care more about, um, you know, prosecuting Family. I don't know. No, that's not the example she used. I'm trying to remember what it was. But it, you get the point, right? It's like there are certain things that that are going to be at the top of the list to do for Democrats that aren't going to be at the top of the list to do for Republicans. And it doesn't mean that the things at the bottom of the list don't get done, but they're they're the the place where the resources and the energy and the the time and the urgency are just going to be different. And that's politics. And that's why you, that's part of why you have elections. And that's all fine. But you also just have human beings in these institutions that are that are often quite ambitious. They're, you know, the second they reach one rung, they're looking at the next rung that they want to get to. And so it's like the time-honored position of most smart people in Washington I know, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, is that the best rule of thumb is to assume incompetence before assuming evil. And I think the sort of the paranoid style on the right, which used to be so much stronger on the left. You know, I, I used to write so many columns about how much I hated uh, the way people invoked Richard Hofstetter's uh, The Paranoid Style in American Politics because they defined it as a right-wing thing. And it's not. It's an American thing. And there's plenty of conspiratorial nonsense on the left, which is one of the reasons why I really welcome Robert F. Kennedy in the Democratic primaries is because a lot of his BS a lot of his dangerous, disgusting BS and paranoid nonsense, in my worldview, belongs on the left. 
And um, so, so it pains me that he's so popular in, on parts of the right. But anyway, like you cannot listen to certain people on the right these days without them saying how this is the most corrupt Justice Department ever. This is the most politicized, weaponized. I mean, I get people emailing me telling me that we live under a totalitarian regime. We don't live under a totalitarian regime. We don't live anything like really anything like a totalitarian country. And it's, I'll get back to that because it really pisses me off. And, you know, it, it lies into all this deep state stuff. And, you know, first of all, 90% of what happens at, 99% of what happens at the Justice Department is basically invisible to all of these arguments. So like making sweeping indictments about the nature of the Justice Department in every regard, based upon the treatment of Hunter Biden or Donald Trump, is really asinine and stupid. Like, it's it's part and parcel of this sort of, um, they're not, you know, they're not coming after me, they're coming after you. No, they're, they're coming after Donald Trump. They're not trying to put most of his fans in jail for, you know, stealing classified documents, obstructing justice, trying to steal an election. I mean, the ones who helped him do it, some of them are being gone after, but that still leaves like tens of millions of people who are completely in the clear from the Justice Department and they're not being gone after. And I get it. It's a poetic phrase because it's really just sort of a much more sinister and omnipresent and pervasive thing where, you know, these, these, these hidden forces are coming after every, you know, decent red-blooded American who's, uh, who likes, you know, Richmond, north of Richmond or whatever. And I just think that like the, the, the way to think about it Yes, there are politically outrageous and politicized decisions, improper decisions made in the Justice Department over the years. And we could recount various ones um, at various times. I have very little sympathy or patience for people who think it is outrageous to try and get the Justice Department to do political things, who also defend Donald Trump trying to get the Justice Department to help him steal an election. The selective outrage by that crowd, I find entirely discrediting on many of these issues. You know, they're like, Merrick Garland's taking orders from Joe Biden to save Hunter Biden. That's outrageous. And Biden is telling the Justice Department, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, if that's true, that's bad, right? And I'm perfectly happy to condemn it. But the same people, a lot of the same people who say that have no problem with the fact that Donald Trump tried to get things that actually tried to get the Justice Department to do things that basically had, basically the entire senior leadership of the Justice Department threatened to resign summarily in response to. And they're like, well, that's fine. That's just politics. It's it's completely unserious and shameful from to make those kinds of arguments. But speaking of unserious and shameful, I saw this the other night. Um, Mark Levin, who I've known for 30 years, has gone all in for Trump. I think it's sad what's happened to Mark Levin, but he has this, uh, he had this great tweet he put out. I guess I'll read the whole thing. President Trump can, in fact, pardon himself from the Georgia charges if he is elected president. And then he has four bullet points to explain his position. One, the Constitution is silent about whether a president can be indicted. Two, the DOJ has taken the position under both parties that you cannot indict a sitting president because it would cripple the executive branch and make his ability to defend himself effectively impossible. That's largely true. Uh, three, given the DOJ's position and the supremacy clause in the Constitution, I would argue strongly that the idea that a president cannot be indicted at the federal level because it would cripple the executive branch, but can be indicted by local DAs, would have exactly the same effect as a federal indictment, except there are thousands of local and state prosecutors making the crippling of a president even more likely. Furthermore, if indicted, and even if convicted, the idea that a president cannot pardon himself from state charges is absurd. Again, not only because of the supremacy clause, but the same considerations that apply to a federal conviction would obviously apply to a state conviction. Therefore, I disagree with Jonathan Turley's view and others who keep repeating it. Now, I want to be very fair to Mark, even though he's not very fair to many people or truth or logic all the time or the law. Um, 
I think he is entirely correct that um, it would be crippling if state district attorneys and local district attorneys could all indict sitting presidents. It would be a hot mess. And, um, and I think that is a real precedent to worry about. You know who I blame for making this president a lot, this precedent a live proposition? The guy who has gotten himself charged in uh, New York, Florida, Georgia, um, and Washington, D.C. The guy who actually tried to steal an election. The guy who obstructed justice and stole documents, right? The guy who paid the hush money uh, to Stormy Daniels, even though I don't think, you know, that indictment should ever have been brought and was sort of a disaster for the country that it was. Um, Donald Trump is the is the, you know, is, is the monkey running around Tiffany's crapping on everything and smashing everything. And then everyone is like blaming Tiffany's for putting crystal out that a monkey could take a dump in. I just, it's Trump it brings all of these things upon himself. He invites all of the, he creates all of these institutional stresses and then Trump's defenders um, leap to uh, the dangerous moral hazards that would come by trying to hold Trump accountable for the just grotesque things that he's doing to our country and the politi our politics. Mark Levin sees it another way. Mark thinks Trump's done nothing wrong, that he's the greatest president ever. Um, he likes his musk. Um, fine, whatever. I think, and he is absolutely right, that the DOJ has, has generally taken the position that uh, you cannot federally indict a sitting president because uh, basically all executive authority inheres into the president himself. And so um, a president can't prosecute himself in effect. I find that argument logical. And I certainly defer to people who say it is the sitting the standing position of the DOJ. I'm not sure it, sh it ought to be that way. I am not sure um, that if a president committed a naked felony while in office that the DOJ wouldn't say, yeah, I know it's a position paper from OLC. You know, it's not like written on a stone tablet. Um, it's not obvious to me that like the DOJ would find, find itself just completely um, prohibited from taking action against the sitting president given the right set of facts. But this is the thing that I find funny about Mark's position is that Mark takes the position most of the time, as I gather, that the DOJ is, is thoroughly corrupt, politicized, weaponized institution that is part of the deep state and has been out to get Trump from the beginning. It is wholly illegitimate and needs to be completely cleaned up and cleaned out and yada, yada, yada. But the DOJ's position on indicting a president is sacrosanct and is above sort of any sort of Supreme Court decision or law or constitutional provision, right? I mean, it's sort of like, you know, I, I, in Miracle on 34th Street where the judge says, well, the post office says this guy is Santa. Who am I to disagree? Which I just think is, is kind of funny. And I also just think he's just completely wrong on this idea that, that uh, Trump can self-pardon in response to a state conviction. I just think it's factually wrong. I think it's legally wrong. I don't think any serious lawyer in America actually agrees with him. You know, Mark just takes the position with great authority and confidence. Whatever he says is right and whatever is good for Trump is what must be so. And um, I, just, I think it's kind of corrupt. I, I know I've rambled on about that for too long. Oh, one other just quick point about... Uh, the FBI and the DOJ being corrupt and woke and yada, yada, yada. I understand it's a bit of a cutesy talking point, but a, a friend of mine pointed out this to me the other day. Um, you know how many Democratic FBI directors there have been since its founding? Zero. Now, I, you know, you have to, when you, as I pointed out to, to the guy who said this to me, you know, it's a little misleading because like J. Edgar Hoover 
was the head of the FBI for like half of its existence. But still, it's not a it's 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 not a bad point. I mean, this idea that somehow the FBI is irretrievably corrupt um, and woke and liberal and leftist and all these kinds of things, despite never having a single left of center Democratic FBI director is worth thinking about. Okay, I said it was going to come back to something. What was it? Oh, yeah. The rhetoric on the right. So, like, again, this is another one of these things. I know I'm tooting my own horn. For most of my adult life and all of my childhood, I just wasn't paying that much attention to it. The people who said America was a corrupt, illegitimate regime, authoritarian, totalitarian, police state, yada, 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 um, were on the left. And when people on the left said these things, it was a standard conservative retort to say you're anti-Americanism. That's anti-American. And it is. We can get into angels on the head of a pin arguments about patriotism versus, you know, what is unpatriotic versus anti-American. I have probably pretty well-formulated views about the differences, but they're not really important right now. If you think that this is a corrupt decadent country ruled by corrupt, decadent people and institutions, if you think that, you know, that a congressional hearing that had no ability to actually do anything other than issue a report was no different than a Stalinist show trial, which is like what people like Newt Gingrich and Molly Hemingway and others like to say, then either you hate America, or you have no idea what a Stalinist show trial was. If you think that we live in a totalitarian system, you are really, I mean, I hate to sound like a leftist here, but you are erasing the lived experience of people who grew up in totalitarian regimes. You know, the state in America, you know, the, neither Donald Trump, who I think is, has authoritarian tendencies to be sure, but under Donald Trump, under Joe Biden, under Obama, under George W. Bush, you know, presidents couldn't say, go take that guy's wife and family and throw them in jail and then knock out all of his teeth until he signs a confession. It's just something you can't do in the United States of America. Kind of came close under Woodrow Wilson with the American Protective League, but that's a conversation for another time. Everyone wants to talk about censorship and all these kinds of things. And I'm not defending every interaction between the federal government under either administration or any administration and social media companies, right? I'm, you know, we're, this country is basically, you know, absolutist on free speech. And, and so we have arguments about really sort of in the grand scheme of things, minor infractions of free speech that we take very, very seriously in this country. And I think that's for the most part, um, right. Um, you know, I have, slightly different views on on the First Amendment than a lot of my friends do, but they're not important right now, right? But the idea that we're no better than the Soviet Union um, or Putin's Russia or Nazi Germany or Stalin's Russia or North Korea or any of these places because some bureaucrats at DHS or somewhere asked Twitter not to allow some tweet to do something or whatever is just wildly ignorant nonsense. You know, we don't routinely in this country, the regime doesn't routinely in this country, doesn't throw them out of windows, doesn't kill their families or send them into hard, you know, labor camps for 10 years. That's what totalitarian regimes do. The number of people who are, are so promiscuous with these terms is really depressing to me, particularly because they're on the right. I've been having these arguments with people on the left for decades about how how grotesque it is to use that kind of language to describe fairly conventional political disagreements in the United States of America. But now, whether it's the guys from most, most of the guys from Claremont or the Heritage Foundation, which, again, you know, is, is a, once again, I hear hemorrhaging people um, who just are tired of Kevin Roberts, the president, pandering to, you know, sort of. Twitter foreign policy experts and, and abandoning Ukraine. Um, 
people just glibly use this language about America, they seem to justify it because, well, what they really are talking about is, is the Democrats. But A, that's not the language that they're actually using. And B, who gives a rat's ass? Because look, I got all sorts of problems with Joe Biden. Joe Biden's not Stalin. I shouldn't have to say these words, right? Because it's so unbelievably stupid to suggest rhetorically, even, you know, with poetic license, that he's anything like Stalin or Hitler or Putin or whatever. You know, the people who like, there was all of this stupid dunking, you know, nonsense when the Biden administration condemned the Putin government for giving um, Alexei Navalny another 20 years or 10 years of hard labor in some prison because so, they're trying to kill him. Uh, you know, and we said something about, you know, this kind of treatment of political opponents is blah, 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 blah. And we are absolutely right to condemn it. But of course, the Trumpist brigades were like, this is so hypocritical because this is what Joe Biden is doing to Donald Trump. Joe Biden isn't doing these things to Donald Trump. Donald Trump has been doing these things to himself and daring the system not to respond. And the position of all of these Republican candidates with, you know, a few obvious exceptions to blame the system for responding. It's grotesque to me. It really is just freaking grotesque. All right. Well, I should probably get going. I got to figure out a G file and we're, we have a dispatch farewell happy hour for a couple of uh, um, beloved colleagues who are moving on. And um, there's other things I wanted to vent about, but it will have to wait. Do give a listen to the Daniel Anand and Ken Pollock episodes this week. I thought, I mean, I enjoyed them a great deal. Um, I haven't gotten that much feedback for, about either. It's kind of weird. I think ever since the Andy McCarthy episode, I kind of comments and, and emails about the shows have, have, have dipped pretty low and I'm not exactly sure I understand why. Oh, and so I haven't, you know, I haven't given a pitch uh, to become a dispatch member in a while. Please become a dispatch member. Uh, we're going to be starting rolling out a lot more meetup events for, for members only. We're going to be doing um, a lot more stuff for members only, which is another way of saying behind a paywall um, and not for the uh, popular apparel company from the 1980s. If you agree with what we're trying to do, if you agree with what we're actually saying and you think it's worth, you know, supporting us, we're not asking for small dollar donations. We're asking for people to become uh, subscribers. This isn't a charity, right? It's a business. And, but if you want to send the signal that, that businesses like this have a place in the world, um, that what we're trying to do is important and valuable, and I think it is important and valuable. Um, I don't just mean sort of some grand cause about making the world a better place and all that kind of stuff. I mean, like, uh, I think our products are... I, I hate to call them products, but you get it. Um, there's a real value proposition. If you just want news and opinion stuff that doesn't waste your time, that cares about, you know, shedding light and, you know, I guess sometimes a little heat from me. I did get some valid criticism that I was, I was too mean to Scott Baio um, in the Wednesday G-File. And normally I would resist that, but I think the the commenter made a good point so fair enough see these are this is the world we live in now where i can say things like i was too mean to scott baio um and as someone who loved both chachi and charles from charles in charge um it pains me it pains me so but anyway we want to do more we're going to do more we can do more we can do better faster the more subscribers we have and if you're already a subscriber thank you um, you can still help by spreading the gospel, by evangelizing. Gospel is strong. I apologize. Uh, but you can evangelize for what we're doing. The best marketing is word of mouth from people who get what we're doing. So if you can forward links, you know, forward newsletters that you get that you think are worth reading, if you can uh, tell people to listen to whichever podcasts uh, you think are compelling, that would be great. If you can give us reviews at those places, I, I think it matters. I'm not sure. Um, I don't really do that. And if you can give us a five-star review thing anymore, I don't really check the Apple listings too much anymore either, but it can't hurt. And it's encouraging to us because, you know, we're hungry to blaze a trail. So uh, if you can become a member, thank you. If you're already a member and you can help promote us, uh, we would hugely appreciate it. 
I do highly recommend Advisory Opinions Emergency Podcast about the Georgia indictments. I learned a lot that I didn't learn from a lot of other sources listening to David and Sarah. While at the same time, I thought David and Sarah did a really, really good job explaining something that a lot of other legal analysts don't, which is that a lot of the legal analysts you see on TV, to the extent they know anything about RICO statutes and, or racketeering statutes, it's federal RICO. And the Georgia law is different. And it's different in important ways. And they were very good about, on the one hand, explicating and illuminating that fact, while at the same time not pretending themselves to be experts on Georgia Rico either. Anyway, the whole thing is really interesting. As much as they hated doing it, highly recommend it. I also recommend The Collision, which is Sarah and Mike Warren's newsletter um, about the intersection of legal stuff and the political stuff when it comes to all these Trump indictments and Trump cases. And hopefully Adam has cleaned up my stuttering, frumfering clothes here so that it is now as euphonious as Daniel Hanan reading the phone book. And with that, I'll talk to you next time. 